0: DealQuest listeners and viewers, I am so excited to have Carson Hattie on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Um, Carson is a major, major player on the on the sales side, currently at Microsoft. He's got a, a four-book uh, best-selling uh, series on uh, on sales, and we're really going to talk about, again, that intersection of how it's not just a sale, but how it really becomes a deal. So, Carson, um, what else are people going to hear about on your episode of DealQuest?
1: Corey, I'm really excited. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Um, You know, we're going to touch a litany of topics, you know, the nuances between the deal and the transaction, um, how to really meaningfully partner uh, with organizations, how to assemble all the right players and the parameters um, how to understand what a win uh, looks like for all parties involved. We're even going to talk a little bit about uh, social uh, engagement, how you can leverage social tools to create meaningful relationships and uh, nurture them over time. So
0: I'm very excited. I love it. Hey, listen, folks, Carson's just a real successful guy, expert in these areas. You definitely want to check out his episode of Quest. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Carson Hedy is the best-selling author of the four-book Birth of a Salesman series and an eight-time CEO President's Club winner across six sales and leadership roles at AT AT&T and Microsoft. He's been recognized as the number one social seller globally at Microsoft and currently serves as the sales director for the Microsoft Health and Life Sciences. He lives in St. Louis with his wife, Amy, and daughters, Madison, Sidonia, and Charlotte, and I am super excited to have Carson on the DealQuest podcast. Carson, welcome. Corey, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. You know, so um, we're going to jump into when well, I normally start the podcast, but I, um, you know, people looking at listening to your bio, are going to, uh, who've listened to this podcast, are going to say, wait a second, Corey, I thought you always make this distinction between sales and deals and you got a sales guy on. Well, folks, I want to, I want to tell you, yes. I mean, Carson is a master, uh, Salesperson, but but he also understands in all his leadership roles and sales roles and whatever the value of deals, and you're going to get to see that. And um, I realized that I love when we bring together this conversation of the organic growth sales along with deals because they're not mutually exclusive, exclusive And I had to look back, and I think it was all the way back on I mean, this is gonna be, I think, episode, I don't know, 130 something, maybe even 140. Um, and uh, the last person we had, I think, where we talked about sort of the integration of a great salesperson and deals was Dell Del Johnson, back on episode 82. So it's been a while. Uh, so I'm super excited to have you on. So before we get into that and talk about some of the deals you're doing now that impact um, how you grow sales for, for the major companies you work for, I want to take you back, Carson, to when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because For a lot of people, it's not what they're doing now, but I don't know. Were you a born salesperson? Did you want to be a salesman when you were a kid, or was it something else?
1: No, I got into sales very much by accident, Um, definitely not by design. Um, You know, I went through a lot of the normal cycles of, you know, wanting to be an astronaut or, um, you know, things of that stature, but I did want to be a writer when I was a kid, so I was able to achieve that milestone. Um, But to know I got into sales quite by happenstance It was one of those situations where I got out of college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, And I actually thought I was going for more of a customer service type role, but I found out very quickly that it was not. And I love that you made the delineation as well, Corey, between the deal and the transaction. Because I started out in a very transactional environment; it was kind of a one call close type of environment. Yes. So I had a certain connotation of sales for many years because of that. But then over time, especially as I started to be, get the the privilege of working with enterprise customers, uh, realized you know some of the nuances of not only longer sales cycles, but if you're truly attuned to their needs, um, you know the the art of the deal as it were is to ensure that you're you know you're aligned to roadmap that you're aligned on critical milestones and that you have the, all the right people um, in the boat with you on both sides so uh, really glad you made that delineation but it was not uh, not by initial choice that I got into sales but it's definitely by choice that I stayed
0: love it love it love it and one other question looking back before we talk a little bit more about what you're doing now and and you know more specifically about deals. Um, What was the first deal of any type that you can remember, you know, could have been when you were a kid later, whatever comes to mind.
1: Uh, First deal of any type. Um, You know, I'd say the one that really probably jumps out the most at me uh, was one that we did when I was um, within AT&T, actually, I was in their advertising bureau for some time and, and a very large um, advertising deal that we were able to land with, with a big name. Now, a lot of these, uh, you know, we, um, it's funny, we started off and and it was a kind of an offset um, subset of the uh, Yellow Pages. It was when we launched yellowpages.com. And so we were okay. reaching customers and trying to, um, you know, make deals around internet uh, oh. products. But also, um, you know, we had the print Yellow Pages as kind of a default as well. So, um, but the first really large deal that we were able to put together was, was a guy on one of our teams that, um, you know, it was a... It, Largest banner that they had done up to that point, and um, lots of different uh, cooks in that kitchen. Lots of stakeholders that were engaged, and a lot of, but a lot of the folks that we engaged. I mean, it could be um, small shops. You know, we were calling off Excel spreadsheets at the time. Uh, we had no auto dialer at that time. It was uh, felt like it was the stone age of sales, um, but it was a very complex deal. And so I feel like that was a, uh, you know, a first real eye-opening experience to getting away from the very transactional kind of one call close uh, run and gun. Um, but, you know, the amount of discipline and also the amount of attention uh, that we had to pay to the different pieces that went into that deal.
0: So, so, so okay. So let's, let's jump off on that and talk about, This distinction that I initially raised and you commented on, you know, of sales versus deals or transactional sales versus deals. And you've already sort of quickly alluded to some things about, you know, having to bring different people to the table, right? Some of them might be in your organization, outside your organization, right? Strategic alliances, partnerships, all this kind of stuff. Why don't you tell me what you look at as the difference between a traditional sale and what makes it really a deal?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think a lot of times we look at the traditional sale as a situation where we can very quickly surmise, um, you know, what the landscape is, there may be few barriers to uh, point of entry, maybe a situation where a lot of the, you know, Senior influencers or the board doesn't have to weigh in. They don't have to ratify this deal. Um, there can be simple transactional situations where there's budget, there's intent. Um, you uncover a need very swiftly, and you know we agree to move forward. And and often, I mean, these aren't the ones that are multi-million-dollar um, transactions, right? I mean, these are situations that uh, relatively quickly we can surmise that there's a need and we move forward. Um, and I think the the big difference, Corey, is really Um, once you uncover that, and and don't get me wrong, no matter what, I think the one commonality is the element of change. And that's Mm -hmm. the commonality of, of the foundation of it is that, You know, in both cases, we're looking at, you know, trying to become part of a transformation for an organization. Now, a transaction um, might have minimal ramifications or implications. Um, However, a deal typically has pretty substantial ones. And um, that's why when we're asking for that level of change, it requires a lot of different stakeholders. It requires an understanding of key milestones and timelines that are going to be required in order to make that happen. It also makes us ensure that we've got the right people in place on all sides. Um, So, you know, my team is in place. The resources that we can bring to bear are there. The investments that we are going to make, um, you know, that level of intent. And then on the flip side, the expectations that the client um, has and are going to bring to bear, what are they going to commit to from a milestone or an investment perspective? And then also, what what is the plan? How are we going to map out these key milestones? Not only before the deal transacts, um, but also, after the fact, I think the key delineation, another key one between deal and transaction is that it's it 's a relationship um, you are truly embarking on a uh, mutually um, beneficial relationship where there are aligned synergies, Uh, there is intent to work together and intent to work together beyond uh, whatever deal transpires. I I think the key element is um, that a deal isn't a moment in time. Um, It's something that you build toward. And it's also something that you build
0: beyond. Yeah, I love that. Uh, That's a great way to phrase it. Um, And are there times in these in these deals that you're bringing, you know, so, you know, there's, You theoretically, whether it's for, you know, whoever you are for Microsoft, let's say, um, you know, where obviously there's a product or service that you do want to sell to the client, the client needs it, um, but you've already started to distinguish out this ongoing relationship, et cetera. Are there times where you're also part of the deal is that you're bringing other strategic resources, even outside of, you know, the two companies to the table? That can certainly happen. Um, So, you know, drawing from a few different
1: experiences, you know, there have been multiple situations where, especially if you're a trusted advisor, uh, there may be even situations where I've recommended or brought in people that would technically fall in the competitive landscape. Um, There's also been situations where, you know, at Microsoft, we have a very robust partner ecosystem. Um, So a lot of the implementation of solutions can transpire with the help of a partner. Um, In fact, you know, I had the serendipitous uh, good fortune of starting a week after our new CEO, Satya Nadella, uh, seven and a half years ago at Microsoft. And one of the major decisions that was made is that we would be a platform organization. We would be open source. We would allow um, solutions to be built on our platform that was critical uh, because it was more about it was less about us always being the solution. And it was more about let's meet you where you are. Let's integrate and enhance uh, what you have in place. And so um, absolutely, Corey, I think. You know, anytime and that's the exciting element of a deal is anytime that you're looking at the deal from a high level, you've got to be able to ascertain, you know, what are the right resources to bring to bear? Um, Who are the right players? A customer may have a desired partner or other player that they want to work with in some way. Um, You know, I've been involved in deals that have involved 12 different, uh, you know, other players, vendors, partners um, as a part of the mix. So I think that's the exciting element is, you know, let's make sure all the right people are in the boat. Uh, because that's the best way to set sail, frankly.
0: Yeah, and listen, frankly, it takes another skill set to be able to, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, I've got a great product or service, you need it, I'm going to sell it to you, here's the price or whatever it is. Uh, but be able, to be able to bring all those stakeholders together and to uh, and to coordinate, right, and make sure that they're all working, you know, rowing in the same direction, if you want to use, you know, a cliche, uh, you know, um, you know, that that that's a whole different um you know, that's a whole different skill set than be able to convince somebody out to buy a one-off product, right? Completely agree. I mean, it's a true
1: orchestration. Um, And, you know, to use that analogy or stick with it, I mean, thinking about uh, the different, you know, the conductor, you are in essence, a conductor or a deal of that magnitude requires a conductor to make sure that um, everybody is playing their part, understands their role um, in the deal. Um, You know, a lot of these specifically at this level uh, require executive sponsorship of some sort. Um, you've got to make sure that you are uh, very clear and crisp in relaying uh, the priorities, uh, making, but again, making sure that everyone understands their role. And often you are the evangelist or the advocate right. for your client when you go back to your own organization. I've often found um, I'm spending time internally helping different key stakeholders on my side understand the priorities so that they want to get involved. So they feel inclined to get engaged, to invest their time, their resources, their budget. Um, So there's a lot of evangelization, but orchestration is the key word. You're, You're almost like a puppet master in that you've got to make sure you understand the playing field and the parameters, the different players, And, you know, you, you set a lot of these things in motion. You also have uh, that uh, responsibility of accountability. You've got to make sure you hold your team accountable, yourself accountable. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes there's mutual accountability. You and the client need to have that level of relationship where you're holding each other accountable throughout. And those
0: elements will really help you orchestrate the deal effectively. Yeah. And it's interesting because you're, you're, you're talking about some of the things that are different at an enterprise level, right? Where, you know, I mean, you know, your average salesperson and this is not a knock on everybody. It's, you know, they're just in a different position, you know, is not selling something where they need to go get executive buy-in because it's already been sort of pre-established. It's been pre-established that you've got this product that sells for X price, you know, or this service and it sells for X price. Maybe you've got a few options. You can sell the client up, sell down, sell across sell whatever it is, but it's, you know, the executive um, input has been done in advance and you're sort of locked into it. Right. On an enterprise level, it's it's very very different, right? Because you're more customizing and designing, and then you have got to go, you know, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, you know, uh, I, I talk about negotiating a lot because I have a book on it. You know, there's an internal negotiation that goes on sometimes as well, right? You know, to to get buy-in from from your people because it's not a cookie cutter thing.
1: And there's so many different stakeholders to your point, Corey, because. Yeah. Um, you know, it is very different than the days where, you know, I I was working at AT AT&T when we started with DSL high-speed internet. And there's a built-in margin to a product. If you're going to discount something, um, usually, uh, to your point, these things are predetermined. Um, But when you're advocating for a discount in a, you know, large organization, and don't get me wrong, I've worked for large organizations, I've worked for relatively small consulting firms, Um, you're either way, I mean, you have to look at all the parameters and the folks that are involved. I can't very well discount a certain product over another product because it's going to have implications. It's going to, um, determine some of the investments that we can make holistically. It's going to determine how some of my people get paid. Um, so there's a lot of elements that, that play into it. That's why part of the, part of the key element, I was, I tell, uh, you know, people on my team this constantly is there's a, there's a pure element of sales that, um, falls into your role, you know, the relationships element and the, uh, you know, the, the actual like understanding and knowledge that you bring to bear, but there's a whole other element in understanding all of the X factors, you know, the, just the, you know, the, the playing field, the parameters you're operating under, um, understanding how to orchestrate these deals, understanding what resources you can bring to bear in every instance. Uh, There's a real value in that. Um, Frankly, too, like how, how can you best understand that to be transparent in the deal. I'm a big believer in deal transparency. Some of the most impactful deals that I've been able to put together, or even some of the most complex ones, um, I've had situations where I've been called in uh, to finalize a deal because the team and the customer had taken months and months and months and couldn't come to terms. And I was able to do so very quickly. And here's why, because I was able to basically surmise, where are they, where do they need to be perhaps from a budgetary perspective? What are their key priorities, but then also helping them understand what are my organization's key priorities? What levers can we pull to, unlock, perhaps additional incentives that we can bring to bear. Um, It's my goal, again, to be that evangelist and advocate. And by understanding the resources at my disposal, and by being transparent in the deal process, um, you gain trust. um, But you also, you know, who doesn't Everybody wants to walk away from those scenarios with a win. I always try to figure out what is a win for my client, the person sitting across the table, or in this case, sometimes uh, throughout that virtual room, Uh, but whatever that is, figure out what looks like a win to your client, orchestrate that uh, within the deal and make sure that you are very mindful of your your customer, uh, your own company and yourself and the other players and how they get paid. And if you take all those things into consideration holistically, that's how winning deals are done.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, this comes up for me as a lawyer. It comes, you know, I look at, you know, I I know a lot of folks in create in quote unquote creative fields. And, um and I always say, I look at a lot of my business clients, whether they're in financial services, whether they're in tech, whether they're in sales, whether they're in whatever. And the great ones really are very creative people. They may not be expressing it in a painting or, or in, a, in writing a song. Right. But there's a, you know, but 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 you need a level of creativity and, and you know, and, and out-of-the-box thinking and, and and ways to think on your feet and, you know, and, and and figure out what's available to truly get a deal done. If you're doing a set, you know, if you're doing a sale and you basically don't have a lot of optionality and it's like, okay, either, you know, and there's still creativity in the sales process anyway, but certainly when you're doing an enterprise level deals where you've got so many moving pieces and so many resources you can bring to the table and, you know, uh, where you got to get approval, I mean, yeah, you know, I think I think it's a very creative field in a very different way than somebody paints, but it's still very creative.
1: You hit the nail on the head, Corey, when you said outside the box thinking. And I think that's why it's so important that both parties or all parties that are involved can state their priorities to one another. You know, what are the key asks that each organization has? Um, how would they prioritize them because not you know you 're not going to walk away, not every side is going to walk away with every single element that they want to get out of the deal per se, um, However, if you are all very candid in you know what looks like a win to one another and you can prioritize those things and make sure that everybody gets that you know some key elements of that in the deal um i think that's what's going to 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 make it a winning deal and and you know when you said that about the outside the box thinking you know sometimes it isn't always cut and dry or, you know, tried mm-hmm. through, there may be some um, unique ways or unique perspectives by which we can view uh, the deal or the potential investments or the resources that we can bring to bear or what does that post-sales relationship look like, um, you know, there's a lot of different things that can be taken into consideration and I think that's why you want to leave no stone unturned uh, when you're uncovering ways to put this deal together.
0: Love it, love it. So I want to talk a little, so you wrote this four book series, Birth of a Salesman Um, and uh, you know, best selling author. Um, what what inspired you to write the books? And then I want to get into a little bit because you know, doing a book is a deal as well. So uh, (laughs) tell us a little bit more about the books, though, before we get into the deal aspect of it. Yeah, you know, I always enjoyed writing. And when I was a kid, I'd write stories
1: about you know people in my class and you know, we were in space or we were time travelers or whatever it was. And then when I was at AT ATT, I was writing this newsletter column. And, um, you know, it was a lot of these articles were gravitating towards sales. Now, look, there's so many sales books out there. Uh, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel. I didn't want to try to do something that would pale in comparison to what else was out there. So I created a fictional story um, about a protagonist who goes through all these lessons and uh, then he writes a book. Right. So it was kind of a book inside of a book concept. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I did this. Wow, a decade ago, and um, you know, to your point, I, I reached out to one thousand six hundred and ninety-two publishers and agents, and um, <laughs> finally found you know it was about fifteen that uh, read read the material. Uh, yeah. Six offered to publish it, and I picked the one with the best distribution. And um, I, I can tell you that uh, it's been one of the greatest experiences of my life. Not because I've sold enough books to retire, because I haven't, uh, but because. It has beget relationships that I never would have had otherwise. I was actually um, uh, recruited for and hired for a role because they had seen that I had written the book. And then from there, it was a relationship. Uh, that led to my next opportunity. And then ultimately that relationship that I made at that organization that led me to Microsoft. So I can very distinctly track back, um, you know, how that book has impacted my career, which has been amazing. And then I've written three subsequent ones, um, the latest being Salesman on Fire, which has been the best selling um, of all of them. So um, it's been a wonderful journey. Um, It was something that I always wanted to do, but I needed to do it
0: in a unique way. Yeah. Yeah. So did you end up getting an agent or you, you went directly to publishers or how, how did that end up uh, happening? Cause especially with the, I mean, I know a little bit about it cause I've done a book, which I, which I hybrid published My my, my wife's done a book, which she got a major publisher deal. Uh, so I know everything from self-publishing to hybrid to major. Um, and, you know, certainly with the majors, you almost, you pretty much never get a deal without an agent. Although my wife was a little bit of a, I won't tell her story, but in any case, um, so w- w- which way did you end up going with that original book the subsequent
1: ones? Yeah, I bought a book called The Writer's Market, and yep. uh, it basically helped me train myself on how to write query letters, and I did a combination of reaching out to agents and publishers, and um, I had more success just going direct to publishers. They publishers. were the ones who yeah. were more uh, responsive. Um, I have done the, the publisher route. I've also, sub you know, um, self-pub since, yep. and, um, you know, I'm not going to advocate one way or the other. I think you've got to choose your own journey. Um, I've yet to get a major publishing deal, but who knows? Maybe someday.
0: And listen, uh, you know, just just to, for the audience, I guess you didn't know, and we've discussed it a little bit on a couple of other episodes. I mean, almost nobody gets a major publishing deal these days. Even 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 the books that, uh, even the, the books even when a major publisher takes you, the advances are not significant in most cases. Uh, unless you are a athlete or a politician or super, so whatever, um, but there are exceptions. My wife is an exception. She she got she got a, a nice advance on a from a major publisher. Um, but there's also so many other opportunities, right? Uh, between self and hybrid publishing, and and for the most part, even even most people who publish with majors, you're not getting rich over a book. You're leveraging it. If you're smart, you're leveraging that book somehow, right? Into relationships, into opportunities, creating authority. You know, marketing getting yourself speaking engagements. If you happen to be a speaker, you know, there's a lot of ways you can leverage a book and there's a, you know, and put business models around it, do deals. Uh, and that's the smart people do that because, uh, almost nobody's getting rich. You know, there are a couple of exceptions, you know, um, you know, I'm sure, uh, both, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama and, you know, and, and, you know, uh, name of a bunch of celebrities, whatever, have made a lot of money off their books, but, uh, those are few and far between. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, There are different ways you can do deals to leverage books uh, even without a major publishing deal. Agreed. Yeah. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to CoreyKupfer.com slash assessment. That's CoreyKupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Of course, in, in terms of, of um, are there any other just uh, either general lessons that, you know, you've learned around deals or, or cool stories about deals you did that you want to bring before we uh, start to think about wrapping up?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, great question, Corey. Um, You know, a couple that really jump out in my mind, you know, one I kind of alluded to, which was around, um, you know, where I was brought in and and, uh, was able to finalize a deal that had stalled for several months. But I'd say probably one of my favorites has been a situation a few years back. And, um, you know, we had historically not had a strong relationship with this client. Uh, Mm -hmm. This client had a global presence. Um, They wanted to, and and had kind of started and stopped to do something that we felt we could augment or complement or do with them or or co-create with them. Uh, They had started and stopped on this project multiple times over the years. In fact, it had kind of become a bane of of existence for some of these folks. And what was interesting about this one, Corey, is that uh, some of the key leaders uh, did not want to engage with my organization. Um, they weren't a historically, I, I would say they probably had some choice words for vendors in general. Right. And so it was very challenging to get in. Now, if I have become known for anything at my current organization, it's been around social engagement. And th- these are things that I learned um, years ago. Um, when I was working for a smaller consulting firm, I was actually uh, started to leverage some of these social tools and you know LinkedIn and, and others to create relationships, but also stay top of mind. And engage over time. Now, I'm a big believer, too, in, you know, identifying all of the influencers and not just the influencers, but also their influencers. So, you know, who are those key stakeholders? So just because one C-suite member blocks me out doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to create relationships elsewhere. Now, it's a slippery slope. Um, Because if you try to go around or especially above uh, different people, sometimes that does not have, um, it may have an adverse effect in the original relationship. But again, what are you gambling if you don't have a relationship to begin with or it's a sour relationship? So um, long story short, I found uh, some key uh, stakeholders, um, some through LinkedIn and social outreach, uh, some through some connections that I had in my own organization that knew people on their board. Um, and at the end of it, what I ended up doing was created a situation where uh, the board, the CEO, and the CFO forced the meeting to happen that I had initially been after. Now, mm-hmm. it wasn't, uh, it, you know, it was kind of, um, um wouldn't say, con- yeah, I'll say contentious. It was kind of a contentious environment at first. Right. But where it really went well, Corey, was because I was able to look across the table at this person and, and basically, and I built a phenomenal team. I had executive sponsorship, Um, You know, we had multiple specialists that had flown in from around the world. And it was just a dream meeting, but it was very challenging to get to. Um, It started out a little rocky. But what was great when I was able to look across the table and help them understand that, look, you know, we understand the situation that you're in. We understand the history and the personal elements of this. And we by no means are presenting that we are or have the entire solution, but there's more of a spirit of partnership. We want to work together to arrive at this conclusion. We understand the outcomes that you're trying to drive. I mean, ultimately what this organization was wanting to do uh, was have kind of a turnkey solution for some of the folks that would either uh, do work for them, do work with them, where their agents, things of that stature, they wanted to have kind of a turnkey solution. And, at the end of it, what ended up transpiring, um, we couldn't do things exactly the way that they thought they wanted to out of the gate. Um, But through, you know, lots of different relationships that we were able to clue them into in our organization, we were able to strike a balance on how we could meaningfully partner, how we could help them resell and how we could help them, you know, set margins and have a quality product for their agents. And so that's probably my favorite deal because there was a lot of elements of Um, complexity. There were uh, situations where some creativity and outside the box thinking were required. Um, It wasn't easy. And I think those are the kind of deals. In fact, those types of deals and the ones where I lost um, are probably the ones that I learned the most from. Um, But I can tell you at the end of the day, even on the deals where I lost, Um, I love the fact that I at least have the respect level built where a customer will still call, uh, go through the, uh, the, you know, the reasons why help me and help my team have some key learnings around why. Uh, But the one that I just highlighted is certainly my favorite because of the complexities, because of the team that we were able to assemble. um, And we ultimately ended up winning in a very meaningful outside the box way. Um, And it was the right way. It was a win for the customer. It
0: was a win for us. Great. You know, you use the word partner with. Right. And and, you know, listen, like anything else, you know, in, in, in my world. Right. Uh, lawyers got such a bad reputation as being deal killers that every lawyer will now say every corporate lawyer says they're a deal maker, Right. But that doesn't mean they are. <laughs> Right, um, you know, there's something. There's a, you know, there's a difference between a lawyer who's truly a deal maker, and that doesn't mean they're not going to advise their client if there's something that is a risk, etc. But they're going to, you know, move negotiations along. They have the skill to understand that there's a pace and rhythm to the deal. They're going to tailor their um, advice and and, and uh, you know and and measure risks in terms of also the opportunity on the deal side, not just. What could go wrong, you know? Um, but at the same time, it's become a buzz phrase now because every because the, the lawyers are trying to counteract the fact that a lot of them are deal killers by saying I'm a deal maker, right? Um, I think partner sometimes has become a word that salespeople use now because it sounds good. Um, so uh, you know, but uh, obviously that's not the way you use. You're talking about true partnership. So what are some of the distinctions between a true partnership, which for me is more of a deal? Uh, then somebody who says, "Yeah, let's partner on this," and really, really, they're just using a buzzword to try to sell you something. I'm
1: so glad you said that, Corey, because it it has become an overused term, um, and it's one of those things that you a, a true partnership is organizations or people coming together with with intent to um, either create or do something game changing, uh, do something that will revolutionize either the way that that business is done or Revolutionized the industry. Um, another one of my favorite deals uh, was actually just that exact same vein was um, it was people coming together. It was a relationship that actually began with their president. I met him on LinkedIn. Was in his office the following week, Uh, um, brought him some material that I thought would be very relevant, including my CEO's book. And I highlighted some passages um, from, you know, where I thought it was going to be most relevant to their business based on what I knew about their organization. And they were looking at doing a... A partnership with an organization like ours, but um, they had gravitated towards some things that some of our competitors were doing. But um, ultimately, what ended up happening, Corey, was because of uh, understanding their needs in the way that we did, creating value around some of the relationships that we could bring to bear, whether it was ones that we had with other clients that could be good partners for them, or whether it was exposing them to some of the resources or people within our organization. Uh, We did executive briefs. We invested a lot of time um, and and just really connected them with all of the people that would make the most sense within our organization. You didn't have to call it a partnership up front like a deal. It became a partnership because- what was transpiring. And so I think that's the key element, is you don't come out of the gate saying we want a deal and you don't come out of the gate saying we want a partnership. You come out of the gate saying, you know, look, these are the things that we identify are potentially some synergies. This is what I know about your business, about your industry. Uh, These are some things that I know people uh, like you are grappling with today, what may be keeping you up at night. Um, And I'm curious how you're approaching those things today. Um, Let's talk a little bit about our journey and maybe our company's journey. And if we find some ways that we might be able to partner or collaborate, let's embark on on that quest um and these things don't happen overnight and that's why i think it's it underscores the entire premise of the difference between the transaction and the deal itself because deals unfold over time um mm-hmm. if you know tr- the foundation of trust uh with transparency uh with making sure that the right people are engaged at all levels that you understand intent budget um and that you're attuned to one another and you're you know kind of sharing those mutual priorities so i think that's the key element and i i I understand why the word partner and partnership is uh, overused, but I would certainly, to your point, um, provide caution around overusage of it because uh, it diminishes the value when you use the word. Um, I believe in in really forming a true partnership, and uh, that comes with collaboration and really mutual investment into what looks
0: like a win over time. Yeah, 100%. Love it. Love it. You know, and, and I, and I noticed, I mean, I just keep picking up on some of these things you say, you know, one, one of the things you said in one of the examples you gave is that, you know, that one of the ways you bring value, and this is, this is a an example of being a true partner is making some key introductions to others of your clients. Right. Um, you know, and, and being a, being a connector bring, you know, brings value you know, to folks. Now there's risk in it obviously. Um, but um you know, but I think that's what somebody as a true partner does. All right. I, I want to give you a minute before I go to my last couple of questions. Um, because you mentioned and, you know, your bio mentions it. And this is what, you know, you're known as a social seller, right? And you mentioned LinkedIn and things like that. But talk to me about what that really means. And, you know, obviously the landscape on social selling has evolved. I mean, I remember, you know, a time many, you know, some years ago, that people first started doing, let's say, automated DM campaigns, right? And they actually worked for a while. Now, I'm not saying so, you know that they don't that they don't work, but frankly, I can like I get so many of them, and I can smell them, and they're you know they're not. I and mean, I just had somebody as an example; I won't use any names, but you know they they reached out to me, you know, to finance my personal injury and workers' comp cases. The only issue is I. I I have, I know nothing about personal engineering work as comp. I don't, I'm not that kind of lawyer. I've never been that kind of lawyer. If you look at my bio or any of my content, whatever, you would know I'm not that kind of lawyer. And then they did a follow-up, right? You know, DM, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, that they hadn't heard from me, uh, you know, and, and whatever. And and the, the funny part is, and I'm, I don't want to go too far. I don't want this to turn into a rant or whatever, but, you know, the funny part is they said to me, if you do this kind of work, and I'm thinking to myself, Listen. If you're gonna, do, I don't mind automating some stuff. I don't mind. It's not the way I do it necessarily. You know. Although we do some, you know, we've done a little bit here or there on some of my courses that I do. But you got to tailor it. Like you know, to I mean, you know, if you if you're doing a DM campaign to you should be able to drill. One of the great things about online is that you should be able to drill down actually to PI and workers' comp attorneys, not just attorneys. And you shouldn't be asking them what they do. You should be doing enough of a legwork to first of all, not only is it less annoying to those of us who you're wasting our time, but it's much more effective and efficient for you to qualify better. So any case, off the soapbox, uh, you know, a bit of a little premise there. You know, how do you do social selling right? And how do you need to evolve with the times? Yeah, I love that question, Corey. I mean,
1: with great tools come great responsibility. And I think it it just shows the growing gap um, between, you know, There's certainly a right way of doing it, and there's a wrong way of doing it, and I don't purport to do everything the right way. In fact, I've evolved my way of doing it many, many times over the years. But I think at the heart of it, um, social is a great way to engage people with insights. Um, You know, you can find out just about anything you want to know about the person. You know, what are their likes? What groups are they in? Um, What's their alma mater? And you can create a dialogue. Um, where I've used it effectively is I do focus on three core components, one of them being the quality of my outreach. You know, what's the, what What am I bringing to bear? Um, do you have a relationship with my organization or don't you? If you do, uh, what types of things, what resources could I bring to bear? Um, you know, a lot of times clients invest pretty substantially with my current organization. So it's very um, it's it's almost critical that I'm reaching out to make sure that they're aware of what their investment brings them that they're not using today. Uh, that's a great place to start a conversation. Um, same token, you know, finding other ways to start conversation. If somebody has a specific discipline or a specific area to, of interest um, or their industry is going through change or their organization is going through MA activity, as an example, you know, there's, there's different compelling events that could create uh, the impetus for outreach. So I try to be very mindful of the quality of my message. Second is, the quantity of outreach. Now, let's be real. It's a probability game. If I reach out to one, two, five C-level folks, the chances of getting a return may be small. But if I reach out to 100 um, influencers and their influencers, my my probability goes up. Now, with the quality of message, it goes up even more. And that's why I think it's so key that we focus on, you know, I'm not going to just automate a message and send the same thing to 100 people um, that is generic and, and gives me a very low yield. Um, but on the same token, if I reach out to 100 people, obviously I have a higher propensity of getting conversations, and that's why I think that's key. The other element is consistency. Um, yes. You know, in some of the in some of the key accounts that I've supported over the years, I mean, I've had 500 plus people that I've reached out to in those organizations, and I've had a couple hundred um, that I've been connected to, that I've you know spoken to, shared emails with, invited to events, invited to uh, webinars, and, and just kept apprised, sent newsletters to. So it's, it, I think it's, it's key that we look at, you know, touches, but quality touches that we, we approach uh, from a position of how can we add value? Um, and ultimately you're investing, you're investing in a relationship and, uh, you know, it, it harks back to what, you know, the, the thought process is of before. It'd be really easy for me to automate a message saying, Hey, I'd love to partner. But the reality is, is that if you make, make it personal and you take a personalized approach um, and you go in from a servant perspective, um, the, the probability of getting a partnership that you claim you seek is a lot better. Um, so I, I believe consistency over time is key because you want to continue to invest in those relationships over time.
0: Love it. Love it. So, Carson, if people want to find out more about you or the books or anything else you want to share, what's the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah, um, LinkedIn is is definitely a place where I spend some good time. Um, Would love to connect. And uh, also on Twitter, my handle is CVHeddy007. Um, And and I've got a a blog out there on WordPress that you can easily find uh, if you go to CarsonVHeddy.com. Um, but you know, I would truly say that I would love to connect. I'm always on a quest for learning and connecting, and and uh, you know, meeting wonderful people. It's been the best thing about the journey with the books, and uh, frankly, the best thing about social engagement has been the opportunity to meet people like you um, all over the world and have conversations. I'm, I'm always learning, and uh, would love to uh, share ideas with anyone.
0: Love it, love it. All right, my final question. So, my highest ideal in life is freedom, and that is everything from freedom from oppression for all people to the freedom uh, on why I'm an entrepreneur. I build you know my business and work with the clients I want to. And, you know, I uh, design my life the way I do. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business?
1: Yeah, it's uh, a good question. Freedom uh, really means that ability to choose, um, you know, getting into a position of strength where you have the ability to choose what you do. And, you know, what's amazing, Corey, is that, th- that, Connotation. I mean, it can be very, it can be applied to a lot of different things because, you know, I work for an employer, I work for a very large employer, but I feel a lot of autonomy and freedom in the way that our culture is today, um, and that they've empowered me to do things um, in a very outside the box and unique way. Um, I've been rewarded for that. Uh, I've been given a lot of different opportunities because of it. So I feel a great deal of freedom, but it's something that um, we're born with certain freedoms. There are others that we have to earn and pay our dues to get, which you've done. Um, sure. And I think that's the key element, is that you really want to determine uh, what are some of those freedoms that you want to have, uh, what are the ones that you don't have today that you'd like to earn, if, you know, if it's not one that you should be, have by default. Um, but I think that's a key element that we're all striving for is to have that level of freedom, uh, whether we're an entrepreneur and we're our own boss, or whether we work for someone and we just want to have the autonomy to do things the way we see fit, um, while obviously continuing to be an ambassador of our brand.
0: Yeah, 100%. Kostin, Eddie, thank you so much for being on the Deal DealQuest podcast. The pleasure was mine, Corey. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the Deal Quest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom Calls, a free monthly 90 minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal driven growth. You will get input not only from me. But all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to wwwcorycupfercom slash deal den. That's coreycupfer.com slash deal den. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Cupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.